Welcome back to a special episode of the Fix Your Plate podcast on the Eat, Drink, and Dine Network. I'm so excited for this episode. It's going to be one of two special DC area focused episodes. And keep in mind that since we, for these, we'll be interviewing food folks from throughout the region, that it might have taken us a few more weeks than usual to put this together. So we might have talked to one of our guests and then a month later talk to our other guests. That is how it goes when you are trying to get the time of food folks in the industry. Right now, we are still transitioning to a new stage in the COVID-19 crisis. There's a staffing issue. Restaurants are reopening fully. And so we are doing our best to accommodate their busy schedules. So just keep that in mind. But today we have some special guests and I am so excited. We will be talking to three chefs, restaurateurs who are really dynamic, who I think have done incredible work in the DC food scene and who I personally really respect. So today we'll be talking to Rock Harper and we'll be talking to Rob Rubba and to Danny Lee. We will let them introduce themselves when we have our individual conversations with them so you can learn more about them. All of their information will be in the show notes. So let's get into it. We are here with a special guest today, one Rock Harper, Washington, D.C., chef extraordinaire, restaurateur, chicken sandwich maven. What's happening, big man? Hey, listen, what's happening, family? I like that intro. I appreciate it. <laughs> I love it. I love it. Yeah. All right, Rock, since he gave you the hype man intro, tell us a little bit about yourself and what you do here in the D.C. area. Oh, a little bit about myself. Um, I'm just a, 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 a guy from Virginia that likes to cook. A little bit. I've been cooking for about 25 years, mostly in D.C. I uh, was the executive chef at B. Smith's for a- almost eight years. I was there, served on a number of campaigns to raise money for organizations I care deeply about. So volunteering and service is deeply rooted in me. Um, I don't want to talk too much about myself, but I'm frying chicken now. That's, you know, I got, I'm adding to my resume. I'm going to get this over to my assistant when I hire them and uh, say fried chicken maven. We say fried chicken sandwich maven. That's going on the resume. You're welcome. bio. So thank you. And the t-shirts. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And the t-shirts. So yeah, so I'm frying chicken right now, uh, serving smiles, building community, and honoring culture through fried chicken. And uh, yeah, trying to give a little nod and uh, put some respect on the black woman's name, the creator of fried chicken. Ooh, that was tight, Rock. That was tight. So let's get straight to, because the reason I have been able to associate you with fried chicken is because of Anella. Because Anella wrote, I'm going to do a shameless plug for my homie. She wrote an outstanding article on her blog, feedthemalik.com, about all the places you could find Black-owned restaurant serving spectacular chicken. Remember when the the uh, the, pop, the Popeye's chicken thing was a, a craze? Anella was like, all right, I feel you. I see you on that. But let me tell you about these Black people in D.C. who are making chicken sandwiches. And she brought up Queen Mother, right? And so that's how I became familiar with you. But when did you decide, with all the things that you've done, this is the lane I want to take now. You know, I've been, um, if you look back, if anyone looks back, I've been frying chicken for quite a long time. I fried chicken on the biggest stage I've ever been on publicly. It was Hell's Kitchen. And on my finale dish, I fried chicken, right? 
And there's a, you know, there, there's a moment, there's a pivotal moment where I said to myself, like, what do I cook for my signature dish at the end? Like, this is for it all. This is for 250000 and, you know, this little bit of fame. And I said, let me go with my culture. I'm going to go with what I know and what I, what I can do with my eyes closed. So professionally, I feel like I've been cooking my food and my people's food for a long time. And I've been OK with that. And I'm OK with, you know, years ago, maybe over a decade ago. Uh, or even longer, I wouldn't be okay with somebody saying, oh, we associate you with fried chicken, right? I wanted the glitz and the glam with the European standards, just like uh, many chefs. But more recently, I've, I've been talking about and trying to gain, you know, investors and attention on opening a fried chicken place for many years. I've been talking to my best friend about it. And uh, when the opportunity came last year, last sort of May, uh, April, for me to open a restaurant, I said, you know what, Rock, you know, you got to do it with your own money. Um, nobody's going to do it. Like, I mean, guys that believe in me, people that supported me. I said, hey, I want to do fried chicken. It was always the conversation always veered towards, OK, well, we can do some upscale southern and fried chicken can be on there. Or I'd say I want to do black food. And they say, what what is black food? There's no such thing. These are black people or white people. So I, I just said, you know what, if I own it completely to heck with investors, um, I can do it my way. And if it fails, it fails. I'm, I'm OK with failing. But if it if it thrives. Um, you know, it, it thrives. So last year I just said, you know what, we're going to open up. Uh, I want to open up a fried chicken. I want to do pieces and tenders and all of that jazz. But uh, from an operational standpoint, I felt like the chicken sandwich was the, the the simplest one to bring to market, especially with COVID. Which one could I run with a one or two uh, person operation? So fried chicken sandwiches it was. I mean, in what timing, right? Yeah. We The fried chicken sandwich craze what started in 2019, but it's not really slowing down. People are leaning into comfort food and food that transports well. And fried chicken, even for the Black community, right, is uh, has a long history of being a food that we took on long journeys during the Great Mi Migration and other journeys, right? And now, as people are looking at carryout and takeout and picnics and all these sorts of things as we adapt to our new normal, the fried chicken sandwich craze is here to stay. It really is. It's not going anywhere. And I, I do want to nod back to what KJ said earlier. Uh, Anel, I just, you know, I, I've thanked you before. I want to say it on your show that um, your your piece that you wrote on, I think you, you've written two pieces uh, in recent time, but the more recent one with Queen Mother's attached to reclaiming fried chicken was really, um, it means a lot. I think it's still pinned on my Twitter profile. And I tell people all the time because I use a lot of words and I'm not as good a writer as you are. If they really want to understand what I'm doing, I refer them back to that piece. So uh, thank you for that. And you're right. It's not going anywhere. Our ancestors, the original fried chicken sandwich was like two pieces of white bread, a leg, you know what I mean? And a little, little bit of hot sauce. You pick that joint off and you got a meal. Um, that was the original chicken sandwich, if you will. And the genius behind that. I tried to uh, talk to folks about because it really is, like you mentioned, uh, the car, the original, again, uh, takeout meal. Right. When we were uh, we couldn't black folks couldn't travel and stop anywhere. Right. We had to take our food with us because my grandfather uh, stopped his family at a certain gas station or restaurant. They could be rejected at best and harmed at worst. So uh, fried chicken was often the meal that many black folks um, a generation prior or two would definitely remember as being that meal that was in the backseat of the trunk. So it's not going anywhere. It tastes daggone good. Uh, but there's also so much culture and history and so much to be proud of that I'm really um, honored to to have a restaurant that, 
you know, is 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 learning more about this um, significant dish, but also, you know, teaching as I go. Do you feel some kind of way when you hear people? Let me be specific. When you hear black people, you know, speaking down on fried chicken, like, you know, like we're above that now. It's 2021. We don't have to do fried chicken. Like what what thoughts come to your mind when you hear people of the diaspora talking down on fried chicken? Yeah, you know, um, a couple thoughts. I, I do feel some kind of way. I have empathy and compassion for any people, but definitely my people when we've been victims of 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 psychological warfare, among other things. So when you can take something, I, I mean, I've just I have so many friends, especially chef friends. I was just the other night I was with um a friend of mine, Danny Lee, who hosted a dinner uh that, that was in support of uh this organization called Embrace Race and it was uh, quite a few Asian chefs and a couple of black chefs, myself, myself and Angel and uh, Scott Juno was a white guy. And um, I, I can't imagine like Danny Lee or uh, what's the other guy's name? David Chang being like at this point, maybe as a kid, but at this point saying, Kim G, get that out of here. Like, you know, ugh. or one of my one of my best friends, is Italian, you know, him being ashamed of pizza or pasta. Right. When I went to his family's house, you know, I learned that sauce they, they asked me, did I want more sauce, my son and I, or gravy? And I'm like, gravy? Where's the gravy? It was red sauce, manicotti, and some meatball. And sauce just, <laughs> you know, sauce just means, like, the dish. Like, do you want seconds? And I can't imagine him being like, ugh, pasta. Like, that's the bizarro world that Black Americans live in. So I understand and I have compassion. I understand where that comes from. This was a, a very successful marketing campaign that 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 worked right to get black people to hate everything about themselves but fried chicken was so dynamic that they said well it's really profitable and powerful so that's another thing we got to add to the list you know chicken loving watermelon loving savages right it was a uh, birth of a nation that that really exemplified that that really uh, amplified yeah. that message so I understand it, but I think that reclaim fried chicken, as Anella put it in her piece, has to be it has to be a part of our future. And quickly, it it doesn't. I use fried chicken, right? No one wants to be boxed in. Danny Lee don't want to be boxed in the kimchi. Uh, my friend Joe don't want to be boxed in the pizza and pasta. No chef, no artist wants to be boxed in. But that's the one thing. If we can use that, then we can use all of the foods of the diaspora. But this polarizing powerful dish uh has to be reclaimed so so that's that's how i feel about it beautiful and so going forward all right i need to warn you too on this podcast we like to talk money sometimes let's go so so it's coming a little bit later so get your mind right but before we get into that let's talk about your migration because if i understand correctly you were in dc doing your thing in dc and now you're in Virginia, right? Yeah. And so what was the mindset? Why leave Chocolate City, right? If you're reclaiming fried chicken and wanting to make black people proud of this again, why leave D.C. Uh, and head to Virginia? Well, so I haven't really talked about this publicly. You know, leaving the place that I, I started the, the kitchen at was not my choice, right? I signed a three-year three uh, deal. Right. Yeah. So it wasn't my choice. Right. I signed a three year deal. Uh, yeah. So and, and um, 
when I looked for a new place, uh, I'm a Virginia guy. Like I've been saying for years too, that, it, you know, I want more. I'm just a Virginia. I'm from Alexandria, Virginia, you know, the South side, Alpha street. Right. It, yeah, I want to bring more restaurants across the bridge. You know, KJ, I don't know if you know much about the area, but it's really, really close. You know what I'm saying? So, uh, so, so, so I, I didn't want to leave, um, but circumstances, uh, you know, worked themselves out and I had to leave. And uh, I looked in DC and, and much about restaurants as we talk about redoing restaurants, it's all about the numbers, right? Um, so, what I'm building is a successful concept that uh, I, I want to build it to thrive under certain conditions. And, um, you know, it's going to take some tweaking. So the, the space that I moved into in uh, Virginia uh, offered the best opportunity for us to build a, a profitable restaurant and, and to, you know, and to navigate this space that we're in now. So we have people who are going to be listening to this podcast who are fans of you or and or are interested in starting their own restaurant. Right. So let's talk some basic numbers you were saying in the beginning, like. You've been wanting to do this. You couldn't really find investors. What happened? Like, how did you find the money? And like, how much are we talking? Like, because your concept is amazing. You talk about profitability, right? And all this and doing the numbers. So let's do some basic numbers. Someone's listening and they want to they want to be the next rock. What are some numbers they need to keep in mind? Yeah. So um, one thing that I didn't really understand, I'm learning a lot about money now. I didn't understand money and how to get it in years prior. And the, the pandemic has been, I don't want to say a blessing, but it's been, uh, it's opened up some doors and some 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 possibilities. So the opportunity at, at the original Ghost Kitchen, I didn't have to put up any capital at all. The only thing I had to provide was the labor and my inventory. Now, so I financed it all myself, right? I had enough money to to buy product and I was the labor primarily, and, and, you know, and if I did not, if I had someone helping me, I paid them every two weeks. I had two weeks to be able to to make payroll, right? So um, I think that how much money you're talking all depends on what you want to achieve and where you want to go, right? Uh, you can you can start up for as little as, you know, um, it just all, de- I, I hate to even throw things out there, but it all really depends. It all depends on what the landlord requires, right? Some of this stuff is, I talked to a very successful restaurateur last week. You can go in with no money down, depending upon your credibility. And if the developer, you know, whoever, if they want you there, right, they can build it out. So for me, all I had to provide was my inventory and my labor, right? And with inventory, I used credit, right? So I used some of the relationships that I had to not not credit cards, but some of the relationships that I had with vendors, because I'm not buying a lot, right? I'm not a three unit, I'm not a $2 million restaurant yet. Um, so I said, hey, float me, like give me 30 days. And 30 days is a long time for somebody that has no track record. I got credibility as a chef and deep relationships, but I don't have credibility purchasing as a company. So I said, hey, give me a month to my vendors. They gave me a month. And so I made money and I paid them back way quicker than a month. And now it's just running the business. So I think to answer your question, uh, there is that initial sum. But then, you know, it's all about, you know, managing uh, the money and paying back the people that you need to pay back. That's kind of all over the place. But maybe you can ask uh, something a little more specific if I didn't answer that right. No, I think that's great. I mean, we we like to talk about money for the sole reason that 
we think that, especially when we're talking about black and brown entrepreneurs, often what we're talking about as a primary or primary or secondary barrier to success is just a lack of knowledge, right? Maybe a lack of relationships. So they don't have the people in the industry that they can go and ask these questions, but they got a dream, they got an idea. Um, or just generally, maybe they don't they don't have uh, someone in their community that they can go ask or they don't feel comfortable. So we always try to ask those questions on this podcast because if we can uh, throw out some data points or give people a reference point, that's a place they can start with. But I do want to shift gears a little bit because this is a DC focus episode. So we got to know Rock a little bit and Queen Mothers, I think is an incredible concept. But what are some of the issues that you think DC is facing as far as the food scene in general, right? We're, I'm not going to say at the end of the pandemic because we're not, <laughs> but things seem to be really changing. Uh, we've seen a lot of pivoting, a lot of kind of reinvention in the last year, but also just a lot of frankly, talk about what's deeply, deeply wrong in the industry and needs to be fixed. So if we're talking about the DC area in general, what are some of these issues that you think are going to be most important in the next year? Well, you know, there was a lot of a lot of dancing last year, right? I know we don't have a lot of time together, but there was a lot of performance, right? June 2. Um, I think, so you saw after uh, the murders of George Floyd and Breonna Taylor. You you know you saw like this so-called racial reckoning, right? And a lot of restaurant people or people in the restaurant space, organizations. What can I do? What can I do? And it, they exhausted the heck out of us, asking us like we got the freaking answers. So you know that's it's like the camp. It's like when you go to a conference and you're like, oh yeah, we're gonna do all this stuff, and we get excited and we realize there's real work behind it. And then two months, like two weeks later, like yeah, I ain't doing that because you know. So we had a lot of that. The challenge with this is, is a lot of white folks uh, that said, we're, we're in this with you. And when you realize what the real work is, then they, they drop out or like, yeah, that was last year. Right. What's what's the black fist this year? You know, how is that marketable? So to answer your question, I think that some of the challenges are many, much of the people, the companies, the organizations that were all about it in July, August, September, that we've seen like, damn, it's not even a year and they've exhausted that enthusiasm that they had last year. So how does that affect restaurants? That affects restaurants in the sense that it's really hard for black and brown creators to exist when rent is $50 a square foot, right? Um, or $75, right? Or just, you know, $5,000 a month. It's really, really hard for us to compete when you said something about information you know, E.T., the hip hop preacher says information changes situations. Right. So many times we think that we get the building. We're good. We got to make it work. A lot of the chefs that I know that are that that have access to these communities, whether they be real estate or, or lending, it's not just rent. Right. It don't work like pay, receive. It's an ecosystem where things move and people benefit from it. It's not shady, but we don't always know how those things work. So to wrap that up, we're going in at the ground floor like retail, right? Anybody from back in the day in D.C., it's like going to Georgetown to get a leather or, you know, some Tim's. And it's just like you never paid a sticker price. You know what I'm saying? That's what it's like. Nobody pays a sticker price. You negotiate black folks for the most part. And I'm generalizing. So forgive me. We coming in on the, on the retail floor and just saying, how much is that? Well, there's a whole nother game being played. And 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 so 
all we want, if you're going to help, is to share what you know, right? If you really want to help, it's not it's not just money. Money is it. Don't get me wrong. But if you have 15 restaurants, I don't want to say any names, but if you have 12, 15, 20 restaurants, if you're a globally known chef and you say you want to help folks of color, it's not like $15 an hour is what a decent human being should do. It is how did you get 15, 20 restaurants in this global, in the most powerful city in the country? in the most powerful city, some would say in the world. I need to know that because I don't need but 100 square feet. So if you really want to help me, that's cool on the meals and you get me the reimbursement for the $6 an hour. That's good. That's going to help me make payroll tomorrow so my cooks don't quit. But I need to know how you negotiated that lease. I need to get an access uh, to that. So I think that to answer your question, the challenges that we face is that it feels good to say Black Lives Matter, Black Creators Matter. We're really helping with these grants. But at the end, we'll see it's not sustainable for a number of reasons that it's not sustainable. A lot of black chefs, a lot of black creators, unless we get help in the city, it's not we're going to be gone in 20 years. Right. Uh, Southeast is sort of war eight is the, like the last bastion. So so I, I think some of the problems is that people don't see it as a problem. They're just like, oh, OK, I'll put you on this list. You know, I'll give you this award. And that's cool. So I'm rambling here and I'll step off my high horse. But the point of that is, I think we really have to understand what the root of the problem is. It's not just Black Food Fridays, right? That's going to provide, which was incredible, right? But I need you, customers included mostly, to understand what the real problem is because you all have the power, those in politics and those in public and private spaces, you all have the power to really shift this thing. So I think we we just got to do some real soul searching and have some tough, tough conversations. I mean, I can't, I couldn't say it any better. So amen to that for real, for real. I appreciate your candor because one thing that me and Anella talk about or have been talking about lately is the difference between training and practice, right? You can do all the diversity trainings and you could say, we're going to give everybody Juneteenth off, right? But in practice, what are you doing to elevate people of color? What are you doing to elevate black people? And you just hit it on the head. What I'm hearing and correct me if I'm wrong, is that in your view, one of the things that's happening in DC is there's a lot of lip service, about helping these marginalized communities. But when it comes to that nitty gritty, because you put me on to something just now, it didn't even cross my mind that I could go to a developer and be like, hey, I'm Rock Harper. You saw me on TV. Let me get this space for free. I'm using your name, you know. But it didn't even cross my mind that that is something that you could do. And you're right. That's the kind of game that we need to take our respective businesses, I believe, to the next level. What What's another thing in D.C. that you've seen, right? 20 years, you're right. 20 years, D.C. ain't going to be Chocolate City no more. But before we get to that 20-year mark, mm-hmm. what is something else that is stopping Black food entrepreneurs in specific? You know, rent is high, mm-hmm. but there are other costs associated with running a food business. So what's another cost that we might not see because we're not chefs and cooks that is really affecting black and brown creatives, food creatives in the city? I think, man, there's so many things. And um, so knowing how to run a business, right? Anella and I share the same uh, uh, accountant, shouts to Darius, um, GSD Financial, just incredible. I think he's teaching me so much about numbers, right? Just by doing his job, you know? So we got to understand where we came from and like right now, it's all get to the bag, get to the bag, get to the bag. 
right? So part of sort of recognizing how we sort of reconcile our current aspirations with the strength and mastery that our ancestors, like what they brought, what they gave to what they left for us, we got to reconcile that. So like when, when, when they were frying chicken in the car, that was for survival sustenance and it was tastes good. It was genius, right? Or when we had fundraisers, right? Bake sales or fish fries or, you know, uh, uh, making food for people in a, in a Selma boycott when we use food as a, as a really as a tool of, of power. When people were laid off, we sell little sandwiches to make sure somebody who got fired because uh, she wouldn't take the bus. Right. So we got to buy sandwiches for her. So it was a sense of community. Right. So it wasn't about getting to the bag, like becoming a millionaire and influence and all that. It was about supporting community. So some of the things that maybe we didn't pass along or maybe we didn't learn was like financial literacy and understanding how to make this thing work. Right. So I think uh, one of the things that we're missing, one of the biggest things is that how do we make good business? So that means how do we price food? Right. Like and and how do we appropriately price food? I'm not even talking about like, you know, why does it cost so much? Like, how do you make a profit? What What is your appropriate food and labor costs? And if you're selling alcohol, um, uh, beer, beer, wine and liquor. The, these are things that I, saw, I talked to this young man the other day who wants to bring a concept to D.C. I try to keep this vague. Uh, he lives in another state and he wants to bring a concept to D.C. And the rent is to this place that he's negotiating with is $6,000. And I'm like, bro, I didn't say anything because I don't know him, but he's just telling me about it. You got to know what a, a proper occupancy cost is, right? Occupancy costs 5% on the low, 10% on the high. You know, these are things that when you talk about Cheesecake Factory, Fridays, Red Lobster, these corporations understand they have a blueprint for success. They don't always work, but they know numbers and we can learn something from these people. Right. They're very, very skilled and very smart. So here's the square footage that I need. Here's a refrigeration. Here's how many parking spaces. Here's the lighting. Here's the signage. Here's what it's going to cost me to run this restaurant. If I get $750,000 in sales and my occupancy cost is no more than 10%, my labor is this, my food cost is that, we will turn a profit of 12% by Q4, right? So we bring to it, my grandmama cooked, I cooked, and I, nobody can cook better than me. So therefore, I should have a, be a great restaurant. So when it's $6,000, we like, oh, damn, two two years in, we this ain't working. I got to cut something. It ain't right. We, we, we were messed up from the, from the jump or we, we had wrong information from jump. So I think um, the biggest thing that we're making missing is taking the emotion, right? The love out of it. I know you can cook. There's nobody. I'm going to go on your record and say it. Got, nobody can fry chicken better than me. No one. Unless you're 62 and a grandmama, like, and you got a lace front apron, <laughs> you can't deal with me. I'm going to go on record to say that. However, making a business out of that has is is complete, has nothing to do with that. Some of the best business businessmen in food I know are horrible cooks, not just okay cooks, horrible cooks. But what do they know that I don't? Because they're millionaires, right? So I, that was a long way around, a passion, a long way around, KJ. But I think understanding my friend um, uh, Nick Wiseman, a little sesame says this, does the math pencil. Very simple, non-emotional thing. Does the math pencil. I mean, listen, was it impassioned? Yes. But that's the kind of answers that we are looking for on this podcast. You, you kept it really real. 
Anella, I, I know you had another question. I mean, I really just have to say shout out to Rock, actually, for I was looking for an accountant when I first took Feed Them Late full time. And like Rock just said, right, I know certain things. I know digital marketing and I know strategy and I can negotiate and I'm a great public speaker. But I like the money part, the business part didn't make sense to me. So I put out a call and here goes someone in my local community who's like, I know somebody who can help you. And every time I meet with Darius, I learn something. And I still, as a young business owner, when I want to spend money, call him first. I'm not at that point yet where I feel comfortable enough in my own business's finances to make a big financial decision without Darius, because I'm like, Darius, please take the emotion out of it and tell me if this is going to work. And it's so, so important to have those resources. And I, no one in my family could have given me those answers. No one in my family could have been like, compared to other people in your industry, you know, compared to the debt that you have um, and, you know, the savings and the projected income for the next quarter, you know, here's what you could probably afford to spend on improvements or technology or et cetera. I wouldn't have figured that out. Um, and sometimes you you need somebody to be able to tell you those things. And what we're really talking about here is, I, I think the term is what, it's social capital, right? It's These are the lessons you learn when you have access to this network of people who have done this before. And it can take you very far in business. And in, you know, whether you're working for yourself or you're in the private sector or even in the public sector, these are the lessons that I think a lot of people from marginalized communities just didn't have access to. So when we do start out, it's almost like we're starting out behind, let alone the discrimination that comes into play in other ways, right? But I want to wrap it up, Rock, because I could talk to you forever. And I want to ask a fun, simple question since this is the DC episode or the DC area episode, because really you can't talk about DC without talking about Maryland and Virginia. If you're going to have an off day, and I know that's a rare thing uh, for food folks, if you're going to have an off day and you're going to take yourself out to eat, what are you going to eat? Oh my go? goodness. Oh, that's a tough one. Um, right now, I mean, I'm looking at your list to see, you know, where I'm going to take my sons. Um, oh my God, that's so hard. I'm so simple. Where am I going if I have an off day? Oh, this is, this is really bad. You know, you know, I'm going to tell you where I want to go, where I need to go. It's Sandlot, really, because I know it's a rotating thing, but I miss Solitary and I've been so hard. When they launched, when the when the Sandlot project opened back up, I launched the restaurant that weekend. I lost the cook, so I, I haven't been out of my restaurant. But the one place I do want to go when I do get some breathing room is down to the Sandlot to see what they have going on down there and to see who's popping up because it's rotational. So it's like you can get a new concept every week. Oh God, I feel like. I feel like I'm missing the shot here, but that's, I guess that's, that's what I'm going to have to say. I love that answer though. Yeah. I, for those who are listening, we'll put in the show notes. Sandlot Southeast is an outdoor container bar in Navy Yard that this year in partnership with Uber Eats will have a rotating selection of local black owned businesses from DC, Maryland, and Virginia. So trying to introduce these businesses to an entire, entirely new audience and you can sit outside and you can have your rosé. That's what I did with my friends. And it was it was so much fun. It was so nice. It was the first time we had seen each other in a year, even though we all live in the same city. I have been on pretty, we've been pretty strict with our COVID lockdown. So 
if you want to head out, Sandlot is a great place to go. No question. Rock, thank you so much for coming on. I do always, when we have a conversation, learn something from you. And I honestly love your food. So keep frying chicken, keep putting respect on Black women's names. It is so important. And this has been the Fix Your Food podcast on the Eat, Drink, and Dine Network. KJ, tell the folks goodbye. Y'all be easy. Peace. <laughs> Old man KJ is in his in his living room cave right now recording. Thank <laughs> you, uh, If you want to find Rock, you can find him on Instagram at Rock Harper, but you can also find him cooking at Queen Mother's, and I highly, highly recommend it if you're within driving distance. It's well worth the trip. Thank you so much. I am so excited to introduce our next guest, Rob Ruba, who is a chef and partner at DC's Oyster Oyster, which is amazing if you haven't been. He's also the co-founder of Bakers Against Racism and a sustainability advocate. So he has a lot to teach us today. Let's get into it. First of all, Rob, thank you so much for joining us. I first became familiar with you because of the work you did with Bakers Against Racism. And we're not gonna spend too much time on that, but it is, for those of you who may not know Rob, a lot of people do know about Bakers Against Racism. So just give us the short version. Like, number one, I was super shocked that anybody but black women were a part of this. I had no clue who was putting this together. So like, feel free, give us a little bit about like how this came to be. Yeah. So Paula Velez and Will Polini kind of put together the groundwork of this project or this idea. And they brought me on because at that time I was making some interesting graphics in my sequestered home during COVID and making some interesting things. And they were like, would you want to do some graphics for this? And I was like, well, can I bake too? Can I be involved in this? And they were, they were on it. So um, from there, I just started creating some graphics and some content for them to launch on social platforms. And then I just became a lot more involved with that, but it's more about everyone who participated in more of the, the mission of Bakers Against Racism. And then the outpour of that worldwide, everyone who came out and baked for that participated. It's just mind blowing what that became and that the first bake sale sold over 2.5 million in product that then was donated to Black Lives Matter uh, organizations around the world that helped communities is it just blows my mind and that I'm just a small part of it not really you know what I mean like it's not really about me at all and it's still kind of uh, very humbling and a lot of work to do but yeah that's kind of what that was about I that love was, it you're like yeah that was great <laughs> I want to bake <laughs> no that was great I really appreciate you number one just it's very organic right like that's the that's the first thing that strikes me is that yeah. your participation was very organic and from a very humble servant place I so I want to salute you for that and then number two there are going to be some people listening to this who are going to be like wait a minute I've never even heard of bakers against racism so if you could give us the tagline like for someone who's never heard of bakers against racism how would you describe it yeah, so Bakers Against Racism is a decentralized bake sale, a lot like you would see at a school bake sale or a church bake sales, community driven, right? We want individuals to come out, voices. We had a devastating event. We needed people to be out there. Um, it's to raise funds for Black Lives Matter organizations. 
to enrich lives and that it's global. Um, you don't have to be working in DC. You don't, you could be anywhere. You could be in London. You can be in Japan. You can be in who knows what town, Montana and sell baked goods and enrich people's lives. And that's what it's about. It's about taking away from having to be one place and not being able to be involved and socially connect us all to make social change. I love it. I love that it combined, right, food with this moment where I think during the pandemic, especially people really felt disconnected and they felt like they wanted to be connected and they wanted to be involved. And it offered people a concrete way to do that, right? At a time where I feel like that connection was really important. So kudos to you all. It was amazing watching it happen from the outside. And I know you were probably overwhelmed. I can't imagine how many emails you got. Yeah, it was definitely overwhelming. I mean, like like you said earlier, or being very organic, it was very grassroots in its way. And if any moment we were to like stop and try to like fine tune things or fix it up, I think we would have lost the momentum. So yeah, I think that's a beautiful part of it that it's just, you know, making things happen, kind of being scrappy about it. And you don't need a huge corporation behind you to make change. So yeah. Awesome. Well, I want to ask you about, I think another, I'm not even going to say project, but another one of your, your foci, right, about making change, and that's sustainability. And I've seen some of your work and your Instagram posts about sustainability. And I also know that you have really tried to incorporate sustainability into your work as a chef, right, as someone who is uh, in the hospitality industry who's serving guests. So let's start at the beginning. When you say you're a sustainability advocate, what does that mean to you? And how did that become, you know, one of your, your focuses? Yeah, sustainability advocate. So it's, I guess I'd like to think of the word like it's very green right now. It's very hyped up. To me, it's about thinking more long-term, uh, I think is an important thing and being responsible. I was at a point in my career where I'd been cooking for you know, 15, 16 years professionally at that point and just seeing everything we were doing every day. And I began to question like, if I trace all these ingredients back, where do they really come from? Who's actually doing this? Where, what is their life like? And it became very disturbing. I actually almost quit. Like I was like, I don't even want to cook anymore. Like I just don't feel responsible as a person who sets up shop every night and has patrons come in and dine with me, but I'm not really taking care of them, the planet or the people who are making the food for me, or it was just really, um, I don't know, disturbing in a way. So I took a step back and started thinking about what would a restaurant look like 10 years from now. Now I think that's maybe much different even what, from what I built, you know, um, with Oyster Oyster. So <laughs> it's always a work in progress. So being is very mindful of everything that goes into a restaurant. I think we're just used to it being just this machine that was built on a lot of really bad ideas and bad practices and has some like pretty nasty history behind it. And like it needs to go beyond just like, oh, we do compost at the restaurant. It needs to be about how do we take care of everyone who works within the restaurant and myself. So that came like breaking down the walls of like relying on tips for our staff to <laughs> to work because it shouldn't be a guest uh, mindfulness to decide if this person should be paid or not tonight. I think that's very, very bad. And, um, you know, that's that's kind of where it became. So now it's very mindful of what we're serving, who I am as a chef 
and what matters in Washington, D.C. right now for, for me, for my voice. And that became a more plant-focused restaurant, focuses on specifically mid-Atlantic products. So I'm cooking from what's available seasonally here in the region, everything down to our cooking oil comes from Pennsylvania. We don't use any plastic wrap at the restaurant. We don't use any single-use plastics. So yeah, I could go on. It's always moving. I could keep going on there. So, okay. What do you think is going to be the big difference between Oyster Oyster and you said this restaurant in the future 10 years from now? Because you already you already said that it might look different. Where do you think the industry needs to go? Um, it's That's tricky. I think we're looking at a lot of ways that it's built. I think we have to take a little less pressure off of everything. I think accolades are kind of an issue there too, but it's like what we think we need to have in a restaurant to succeed, to feed people, to feed our communities, to feed one another. So, I mean, one thing is like how we operate, what basic things that don't need to be there? Do we need bottled water shipped to our restaurants in packaging that gets poured at your table and then thrown away? Like that's one thing that should already be gone, right? Is it a bunch of to-go packaging, a bunch of, I don't know, restaurant swag, like that doesn't really, like all these things that are like just more advertising that are just, you know, I don't get me wrong, I, I buy it all, but <laughs> it's in 10 years, do I need it? No, it's, it's kind of removing those things from us and being more responsible towards uh, where we are. I also think that during COVID, we saw a lot of food insecurity and how our food systems are so broken. You would go into the restaurant happens to be right across the street from a giant. You go into that giant when COVID started, the shelves were empty on the produce sections. And I have farmers here in the DMV area telling me they can't even sell product they have because these contracts. So we have farms locally, we have farms within the city that could actually feed the people that are there. And we can shorten that um, that range really easily and feed more people and create more jobs. And I think that's, that's really important, something we'll focus on in the future. I mean, one, we have a common good city farm here in, in DC. And I mean, they've been beating the city off of that farm, handing out food all through all this. And I mean, that's beautiful and amazing. And I think we need to support organizations like that more as businesses. And I think that's something moving forward. We need to see more of, uh, we feed, we feed those who come in the door, but we need to be able to feed those who can't even come in the door too, and figure out ways to tie that into our, our business performance that we make when we're like designing these concepts, you know, like how <laughs> like a lot of it's just to pay owners and investors, but we need to figure out how to like food just shouldn't be a business or a commodity like this commerce, you know, it needs to be more, more well-rounded and more about community and can still be creative. It can still be fun. It can still be whimsical, but we have to be able to kind of take care of one another as well. So I, first of all, I think everything you're saying is, is spectacular. I used to work for a environmental policy nonprofit organization. So we were working on some stuff like this, but you you are really going deep in the weeds and I appreciate that. So let's make this tangible for our listeners. If our listeners want to become more sustainable in terms of being patrons, right? Mm -hmm. They don't own a restaurant. They're not trying to own a restaurant, but they do want to still go out to eat, but be better on the planet. What are some tangible ways that they can do that? Is it just as simple as saying, hey, we're not going to take the, the plastic utensils if we're doing takeout? I mean, that's one step. But are, what are some other things they could do? Um, I mean, yeah, that's that's great there, too. I mean, as a 
consumer is maybe just order the tap water. I mean, I think in DC, you legally have to have it filtered anyway as a restaurant, right? Um, and DC tap isn't awful. We don't see anything about it yet. It's not catching fire when you turn the faucet on. So, <laughs> okay, like that's one thing you can do. Another thing is maybe maybe do a little research about where you eat. I, you know, um, maybe that's I'm not saying don't eat at a steakhouse or whatever, if that's what you want to do. But do they have a composting program? Like, see, see what the ethos of a restaurant are. And maybe that's what you're buying into, right? Like we look at all the other products we buy, we go to supermarket, we say, oh, that says natural, that says organic. Well, let's kind of look at that when we pick what restaurants we're going to support or why we're supporting them. It doesn't have to be because they're green. It could be for many reasons, but kind of look at it that way. You know, maybe how much disposables are at a restaurant. Don't be afraid to ask questions. You know, there's some places I've gotten takeout from that I really like their food, but I don't like their packaging because it's so bad. And I've mentioned, I said, do you, do you think you could get this in a compostable container or could you not use so much plastic? And sometimes owners just need to hear that. You know, I, I love hearing new things. So don't be afraid to do that as well. I love it. You're making them active participants in this. We're not just going to expect you as the restaurateur to save the planet. We as consumers can play our part as well. Uh, one more question about your restaurant in particular, okay? Just go ahead. I'm a fat boy. What am I eating when I visit, sir? Because I looked at your restaurant, your website, and it all, you know, people, I think sometimes people hear sustainable or green and they automatically think gross. They think, you know, flavorless and things like that. But I looked at your website and it is not that, sir. So when I come back to D.C., tell me what should I be getting? Uh, five courses of salad. And um, no. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I... I love to eat. I love delicious food. So we are we are a tasting menu format. And that is just because there's a really good bounty out there. And we don't have chicken. We don't have fish. We don't have steak. So the best way to showcase what the bounty is for that season, we've kind of picked this five course menu, but it's it's priced very well. And it's exciting. You know, you have an option to add oysters because we are in the Chesapeake. If I open this restaurant in middle America, I wouldn't serve oysters, but that's important. So you have the option to eat oysters as well. Um, we do, we bake our breads in house. So you get a fresh baked bread course. We got local butter. If you don't like butter, we have some amazing infused oils for completely plant-based meal. Lots of delicious mushrooms, foraged ingredients from around the DMV. And uh, I don't know, right now it's pretty exciting because we finally have strawberries, asparagus, peas, all that jumping off right now. So <laughs> it's a good time to be eating for sure. Strawberry season is my favorite season. Strawberry season and mango season. And they're, they're in competition in my mind. <laughs> they're both delicious. We got to grow some mango trees here. We need to get a little greenhouse for that. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and... I know that every every time I ask uh, a chef this, they're always like, we don't eat out that much. And I'm like, I know. But if you were going to go out to eat somewhere in D.C. that's not Oyster Oyster, where would you go? Ah, you know, people coming after me now. <laughs> <laughs> we should have warned you we're about that smoke on this podcast, sir. <laughs> Oy, oh, geez. I don't know. I have such a big list. I haven't gone out. I was like... I was like waiting for a vaccine, so I finally have it. Maybe I'm going to go, and now you put me on the spot of which place I'm going to pick. Oh, jeez. You have to have, even okay, in old days. I haven't actually ate at Albi for the real experience yet. So. Oh, my God, it's so good. You have to go. Okay, there you go. It's, it's endorsed by you, so. 
All right. <laughs> yeah. Well, um, you know, my husband and I lived in the Middle East for a long time and uh, all throughout the region. And we've traveled and lived in the Levant itself and being food folks. And he's Arab American. It's one of our favorite places. And I give it this endorsement. So and this is, I think, pretty common, like Ahmed doesn't really like going out for Arab food because he's like used to it. Right. It's not it's not that exciting for him and, and his family can make it. And like, so why would we spend money on it? And so I dragged him to LV the first time and he said, best fancy Arab food I have ever had. <laughs> and okay. I gladly spend money on it. And we've been back like eight times. It's the only time I can take him out to get Arab food that, and he really likes shababi chicken as well. Those were the only two that he like is happy to spend money on. So that's my endorsement. <laughs> that's a really good endorsement. Yeah. It's, it is uh, quite delicious. Okay. Um, I have one more question and that is, are you thinking of changing anything in the next few months at Oyster Oyster? The people are vaccinated. The environment around us is changing so much. Um, be it for, you know, sustainability purposes or other purposes, like, are you looking at this upcoming season as a season of change? Or are you looking to kind of stay the course of what you've been doing? I mean, I think we're going to finally open our doors officially indoors. We haven't done that at all. So that's kind of big for us. Um, and then I think just keep chipping away at what we're doing and figure out new ways to be better every day. I think that's what our, it's always about change. This restaurant's always changing. It's always evolving. Nothing about it's dogmatic, right? So yeah. Dining indoors. Yeah. <laughs> I'm like, I don't know. I'll no. still be on the patio, but. <laughs> yeah. Well, thank you so much for your time. Uh, I really appreciate it. And I took some notes to share out with uh, our listeners and we'll put them in the show notes, your tips. I think the tap water is an overlooked one, which is kind of ironic because it seems so simple. And we, of course, appreciate you letting us pick your brain a little bit. Yeah, thank you for having me. It was fun. Danny Lee, chef and restaurateur behind concepts like Chaiko, Mandu, and Anju who has also been active in DC, raising funds and awareness for anti-racism efforts as our next guest. So let's get into the conversation. We have Chef Danny Lee with us today. We're gonna to talk about a number of things, but first and foremost, sir, how are you feeling tonight? I'm doing great, thanks for having me. So I wanna go ahead and get started. Danny, would it be out of, out of pocket for me to say that you're not a fan of racism, sir? <laughs> <laughs> uh no it would not be out of pocket for you to say that i am not a fan of racism there you go i mean a lot of the work that you have done let's let's use this as a as an opportunity to intro yourself because mm -hmm. um you know the stuff i've seen uh with you really being at the forefront of using your creativity through cuisine to promote anti-racist work or anti-racism work i think is is very um pertinent for the times that we're in and so, yes, give the people who may be listening, who may have never heard of Danny Lee, just a brief introduction of who you are. Sure. I am Korean American. Uh, my parents immigrated to the country uh, around 1970. They met in graduate school in Illinois. Uh, they moved to the Northern Virginia area. I was born in D.C., which is actually rare. If you have ever been to D.C., everyone says they're from D.C., but rarely do you meet someone who's actually born here. Um, Grew up in Northern Virginia, you know, in a very, um, you know, middle class, very white, you know, area. My mom always had little, like, she had a little deli when I was young. So I guess I kind of grew up in the industry. 
my father passed away when I was in high school. My, I have an older sister that was in college at the time. So my mom needed to find a way to support the family. So she linked up through her alumni work, network from the University of Illinois, uh, a local Chinese restaurateur here named Charlie Chang, who had a, a bunch of kind of small, uh, well, some big actually Chinese restaurants. But when National Airport was reopening in 1997 here in, in D.C., he won the bid to have a little shop there. So my mom actually ran, was basically a franchisee of this Chinese restaurant, even though we're Korean. But through time, um, and I would help out there when I was in high school, you know, if there's homecoming or prom coming up, my friends would beg me to work there so she could pay the 50 bucks and they could buy a corsage, you know, or whatever. And we, uh, you know, ran a Chinese restaurant at the airport. But through time, she started to put some Korean food on the menus there like bulgogi rice bowls. And even though this was, you know, late 90s, early 2000s, which doesn't seem that far away ago, a lot of people didn't know what Korean food was. They only thought of Korean barbecue or didn't know about it at all. So being at the airport, you get people from all walks of life and uh, they were loving it. So that gave us the idea of, you know, eventually opening up our own family restaurant in the district, which back then there weren't any strictly full service Korean restaurants that existed in DC proper. Uh, so in 2006, uh, when my mom's lease ran up at the airport, my sister and I decided that we had an idea for us as a family to open up Mandu, which stands for, which means dumpling in Korean, right near DuPont Circle in DC in 2006. We fell on our faces for the first six months. I'm the first to say that we were terrible. Uh, my mom hates it when I say that, but we were. And then through time, we got better. My mom and I started to coexist in the kitchen, which still is a struggle to coexist in the kitchen with her i could only imagine open. dude yeah but she's amazing i've learned everything you know i do is, is because of her i've learned so much from her and you know she's about to turn 75 and she still is very active in the kitchen and you know loves working can't keep her away from it uh, in 2011 we opened up a second location of mandu close the doors down, downtown in the mount Vernon triangle area of dc and then in 2017 one of my best friends and co-chefs here in the city uh, we'll follow chefs in the city, Scott Druno. He and I linked up to start a new restaurant group called the Fried Rice Collective, uh, which we named kind of our parent company. And we started with a concept called Chaiko, uh, which stands for Chinese-Korean. What's crazy about that story is that the day we opened, uh, we the first mandu that my mom and I opened in 2006 caught on fire that morning wow. and burned down. So that was one of the most surreal days of my life. Yeah. Was, to watch your first restaurant, your baby, you know, smolder as you are hours later opening up a new venture. Right. Uh, well, you know, we had insurance and, you know, it was a very tough process, but, you know, we we're able to reopen that concept as Anju. So now we have three Chico locations in the DC area, one in San Diego, and we have Anju as well, which is more of a, I don't want to say progressive or modern, but it's more of an all encompassing homage to Korean cuisine um, that we have now as well. So. In a nutshell, that is uh, my story. I mean, that's not a bad. That's not a bad way to start the story, man. So we just just to recap, Danny is one of the rare people who are born in D.C. At least in these days, rare, right? Yeah. You opened up restaurants. Well, worked in restaurants with your mom, and then you and your mom and your sister started a restaurant. Started another restaurant, and you have the restaurant group now. I didn't know about the San Diego spot, bro. You are, you're you're bi-coastal, huh? You know, I don't know why we did it, but we did it, and it's working. So, <laughs> I've always wondered about that. I've always, I, I, you know, not being from D.C., moving to D.C., and really kind of digging into the food scene, I've always been like, they have a California location? Yeah, everyone's always puzzled by that. But, you know, we... It works, it works. 
Yeah, you know, as we're working, we um, our chef out there, Eric, does a great job for us, and you know, he trained with us here for several months before he moved out there. So you know, it, it worked. And both Scott and I, you know, lived for about a month out there when we first opened, just to make sure that you know things were going as as they should, and we were happy with it, and just to work with the team there and build the culture that we wanted to build, engage with the community out there as well. So you know, we definitely spent some time out there. So I want to get into transition from this really incredible backstory to taking your work now and really using your life's work, honestly, to make a statement and to support anti-racist efforts in DC. We've seen a lot of this throughout the country, but I think that the event that you put on was really thoughtful, first of all, which I appreciated to support you know what, I'll let you tell people about the event that you put on and why, my question is why you structured it that way, because I thought it was very thoughtfully done, but that's my opinion. I'd love to hear how that came about. <laughs> sure. So in April, I decided to throw a fundraising dinner involving several guest chefs in support of an organization called Embrace Race. Embrace Race is a wonderful organization that provides resources for teachers, school districts, parents, counselors, provides them the tools to educate children at a very young age on anti-racism, anti-bias knowledge. And that struck a chord with me because when you think about some of the ways we can, as a community, try to make a dent in, you know, destroying racism, it has to start at a very young age before a lot of these systemic biases start creeping into our children's minds. You know, it's unavoidable. And if they're trained in a way to acknowledge some of those biases at a very young age, you know, I, I, I think that provides us hope. And these are the kids who are going to develop into our future leaders in this society, right? And so that was number one, was I thought it was important to highlight a group that was highlight, that was providing more resources on the educational side of things. And number two, you know, obviously, since I am Asian American, I have been very affected by the rise in anti-Asian rhetoric that um, has especially happened in the past year. What I also was seeing was a lot of fringe groups, you know, on all sides, all communities, pointing fingers at each other, blaming each other for lack of support or not enough support or trying to have a very dangerous discourse on honestly different minority communities blaming each other for what's happening and i thought that as we try to progress in this country and provide progress in our society there needs to be a lot of interracial solidarity uh, in order for us to really work together and defeat the ultimate enemy which is racism and white supremacy in this country right and i thought it was very important that even though i am asian american andrew is a korean restaurant I wanted to show strength and diversity, strength in the diverse community that we have in our own chef community and the restaurant community by number one, highlighting a group that was not race specific. And number two, showcasing a very diverse lineup of chefs and telling them and directing them not to feel like they had to cook Korean food, but to cook whatever they wanted to showcase their own heritage. Right. And every chef did it and they told a story, you know, we brought them up, you know, for each course and each chef developed a dish that honestly told a story of either their upbringing, their heritage, or their life, as we've all tried to navigate through this, you know, through these unfortunate issues that we have to deal with. Yeah, I think, so there's a couple things I want to touch on here, because I think it's really important. KJ and I have talked about this on previous episodes quite a bit. I think we usually have termed it the suffering Olympics, which 
is incredibly counterproductive and we have seen it ourselves, uh, especially, you know, as entrepreneurs in the digital space where communities will accuse other communities of not being in solidarity enough or not being able to understand their suffering. And, you know, the important part here is that white supremacy makes us all suffer <laughs> and no, none of us are going to be exempt from that. And so you're absolutely right. There needs to be, at least I believe there needs to be some strength in diversity. And I, I, that's why I thought the event that you put together was so thoughtful and I was so mad that I missed it, but we couldn't afford it at the time. So <laughs> we thought about it. Ahmed was like, really, can we do this? And I was like, oh, it's probably not responsible. Okay. <laughs> but from that, I think we've seen in the DC community, right? There's a lot of activism going on around mm -hmm. anti-racism, uh, about stopping, you know, anti-Asian discrimination, but also other types of hatred. And I wanted to ask you about what you see in the next year for the DC food scene. We've seen so much activism from restaurateurs, chefs, bakers, etc. And what's your prediction for what we're going to see in the next, you know, 12 months to 24 months in the local space? That's a good question. You know, I, I think there's going to be a lot of self-reflection. The conversation right now is about staffing, right? And the lack of staffing industry-wide across the country. But the conversations that are being brought up are, you know, you wouldn't have a labor shortage if you treated your employees better in the first place, right? That's one of the most common things you hear right now. Um, and for certain owners or operators, you know, maybe they weren't treating their, their staff right. You know, I've heard stories, you know, I've unfortunately witnessed certain things. But for us, you know, we like to treat our staff as our family. You know, we, we want to create an environment that is comfortable and nurturing and uplifting. Uh, as much as we can. We're not perfect. And I think that's the first step here is for everyone to take a step back and realize that they're not running a perfect restaurant, right? They're not running a perfect business. You can improve. And it takes that self-reflection and honestly, real talks with your staff, right? With your family to see what you can do as an operator, as an owner to be better. What can you do to create a more inclusive atmosphere? What can you do to provide an atmosphere where staff doesn't feel threatened by guests in certain situations, right? What are some of those processes that you can implement that will go a long way? And I think hopefully that's a conversation that's gonna continue within the next 12 months, 24 months, is how can we collectively as a restaurant industry, you know, number one, recover from one of the worst financial hits that the industry has ever faced. As we slowly start to come out of that, is a rebirth in policies in general. Like in DC at least, minimum wage is $15 an hour. If you go five minutes away into Virginia, it's half that. There, there needs to be, I, and I do agree, there needs to be a lot of equality in terms of minimum wage so that you are giving people a, a fair wage, a fair living wage. And you know, I, what we're trying to do in the industry you know, is in our own way, you know, raise wages as much as we possibly can while keeping the lights on, while still keeping a, a healthy business, but it needs to be industry-wide. And unfortunately, there are always gonna be some people who don't run things, what I deem to be, you know, a responsible right. way. And I think that's true with any business, but I think it also comes with, on the guest side, guests need to start being comfortable with the fact that you're not paying just for the food or the drink that you're consuming, you're paying for the staff to be there. So if, Collectively, as an industry, we are going to increase prices, not just because of 
wages, but because of a gigantic increase in food cost, a gigantic increase in paper goods packaging. It is astounding how much those prices have shot up. You, we have to increase our menu prices to account for that. If not, every restaurant's going to close. And it's up to this national conversation that we need to have about pricing. And that's always something I've been very passionate about, especially in terms of how ethnic and specifically Asian restaurants have always been deemed. Is the cheaper the restaurant is, the more ethnic and more traditional that restaurant was seen to. The more authentic it exactly, is. Exactly, right? And I got really sick of it. You know, I would see affordable this or cheap eats list, right? And it would always be in the suburbs in like in a Vietnamese shopping center, right? Or in Koreatown. And I thought that was very dangerous, right? It was putting a very dangerous label on ethnic food that it could only be traditional and authentic if it was $3.99 out of a strip mall in the suburbs. And what that does is it flooded those restaurants where they're not making money on that. But since people are going there because it's cheap, they can't increase their cost. They can't increase the price. And it created this really dangerous catch. And it also affects other restaurants who for maybe they're in the city and have higher rent paying, you know, higher minimum wages or whatever, you know, have an increased menu cost. And I'm like, oh, well, this is probably Americanized because it's more expensive. And that's something that's always bothered me. Yeah. I mean, so I won't name names, but for folks who follow the DC food media, there was a prominent restaurant closure because of a staff walkout over what they termed in their interviews with media to be not only poor working conditions, discrimination, harassment, but also changes to the tipping structure did reduce the income of some of the staff. And they characterize it as this is such a horrible place to work that if we're going to make less, it's not worth it. And I think that what we're seeing is not really a labor shortage, but a reevaluation of the service sector, of what it means to work in a sector where you might be abused by staff or by your managers, where because of the tipping structure, your pay is going to fluctuate. On top of that, we have issues with public transit where people can't get home at night after they get off from their shifts or you know, Ubers are four times what they used to cost. So now they're paying a third of their night's pay to get home, et cetera, et cetera. And how do you entice people to want to work for you? We know in American society that the studies show that money isn't everything. People want to feel valued. They want to feel like they can grow. They do want to feel like they're part of a family. And we spend so much time at work. That makes sense. We're kind of a workaholic culture. And I'm so curious to see what happens in the future, because I suspect that there will be many more staff walkouts in D.C. and other cities as workers are like, we're not doing it. Yeah, you know, I think, first of all, the pandemic caused a lot of employees who worked at restaurants that maybe were using this industry as a placeholder to to make some money and, and really figure out what they, you know, what their ultimate dream job would be or education or whatever. I think the pandemic caused a lot of people to just leave the industry in general because they had time to focus on their studies, take an online course, you know, or find a different field where they could work from home because also a lot of jobs just weren't available because of it. And we only, we had to do only takeout and delivery, right? So especially for a lot of front of the house employees, bartenders, hosts, you know, servers, they did not physically have a place to work anymore. So they had to find another job, which 
sometimes was a little bit more meaningful to them. What I take offense, I've heard this a few times is, you know, oh, well, now I'm going to get a real job as if what we're doing for with our life right now is not real. You know, this is a profession. There's a, this, <laughs> this takes passionate dedication. It takes skill. And I, I have qualms with people who, when they say, oh, well, you know, I don't need to work at a restaurant since I got a real job or I got a grown up job. You know, that that is very offensive to me. I mean, Dan, Danny, let me, let me just ask though, but can you see if you're not working for someone as wonderful as Danny Lee, where you are in a restaurant where you're, you know, the tipping structures change, you're making less money, the hours are crazy, my manager talks to me like I'm stupid, like, you know, that doesn't seem like a real job, at least in the sense of real is insustainable. So maybe, I mean, can you see that maybe that's the perspective? I obviously know that cooking is a skill, but if your experience in the restaurant world is one where you're, you know, I used to work at Wendy's. My boss sucked. You know what I mean? Like I had no problem leaving that job. So, yeah, I think maybe – I don't want to put words in your mouth. Do you not see it from that perspective or is it just like – what do oh, you no, think? Of course I do. And, you know, I don't know that – I know what restaurant you brought up. I don't know them. So I don't know. And I've never worked for that restaurant. I've never actually dined at that restaurant. So I literally have never seen, I've never experienced just like the atmosphere there. Right. So number one, there's that. But with everything you just said, KJ, of course, I see, you know, acknowledge that of, of why people would not, why someone would not want to work in an environment, you know, like that, of course. Right. And I don't think it's just financial. And for what I understand from the article, it wasn't just financial. And they made that very clear in the letter where it wasn't just because of a change in tip structure. It was because of several other almost systemic issues, you know, within the management organization. However, what I do want to point out is I used to work at, you know, my first job out of college was at a law firm as a legal assistant. And the abuses that are obviously highlighted in the restaurant industry in terms of mistreatment isn't every other industry isn't immune to that. Right? Oh, 100%. And I saw that in the office. Right? So it, it was demeaning work sometimes. Like attorneys at the last second, you know, you got a five o'clock filing, right? And my job was to photocopy 2,000 copies of a 50-page document and get it to FedEx by five o'clock. And they handed to me a 4.55. They're like, get it done. And if I didn't, they're like, what's wrong with you? I'm like, that is not physically possible. Or someone just calling you to come to their office just to, you know, like say like one word to you. It's like, you couldn't just pick up the phone and say that you made me go all the way over there just because you think you could. You know, um, there are all these microaggressions that you see, you know, that I look back on in my own life that, again, all these experience that, the experiences that I've had that my business partners had growing up and especially in this industry help shape us and shape our company to what we never want to be. And I think we have an opportunity now to go back to what I see in the next 12, 24 months. That's what I mean by self-reflection is we now have an opportunity to correct some wrongs, but also to preemptively fix certain issues that or address issues that could come up later. Right. And it's a good time to do it now. Like I know DC just released all restrictions and you can go back to hundred percent. We're not, you know, cause number one, we're not ready to, we don't feel ready to, but we are slowly ramping up on our own timeline, right? But since we're not 100%, that gives us the time to really work on our systems, work on our culture, work on the atmosphere, work on the environment, right? To, again, be as strong as we can be. And that just doesn't mean in terms of finances or 
terms of quality of food or, or beverage. It's honestly, we are as strong as we can be in terms of how healthy our staff is mentally and physically. I love that. And I think that is the perfect ending point. Um, thank you so much for coming on. And as I suspected when I asked you to come on, this has been an incredibly insightful and informative conversation. I think really important for people to consider especially as I know at least a lot of my audience, they are your customers, right? They are the people buying the food and sharing it and reading about it online. And we are all having this conversation about what are the types of businesses we want to support? And also what are the types of customers we want to be? And whether we're talking about masking or wages or just the way we characterize certain ethnic foods, I think this is a really important conversation and given how much is changing in the industry, I hope, as you said, that this is, you know, the right time to make some of those changes. I hope so. You know, and I think, you know, I think you're starting to see that, you know, we're trying our best to, and again, like I said, we are not perfect and we will spend as much time, resources, anything, you know, to be as best as we can be. Right. But again, as my advice for everyone is, you know, it, it, the first step here is acknowledging that there are problems, right? There's no progression without acknowledging that the, that problems exist in the first place. So I think that's a critical first step right now. Absolutely. And for our DC listeners, or some of you in California, <laughs> <laughs> you can check out Danny's restaurants. Their food is amazing. I am a big fan of the DC locations. There are multiple locations of Chaiko. Anju is a favorite of ours and also Mondu. So please uh, support them. And we look so forward to seeing what you do with your concepts in the future. Thank you very much. Thanks for having me. Man, you guys got to hear three really good conversations from three people in the DC food scene who are absolutely killing it. But we want to hear your opinions. We want to hear your comments, your thoughts. Send us a DM. I'm at Black Food Fridays. Anella is at Feed the Malik. They are both spelled exactly as they sound. We want to hear from you. And also leave us a comment. Let us know what you think about the episode. Give us a rating. Share it with your friends. And join our respective mailing lists so you don't miss future episodes. Because we got another DC episode coming. So you need to be on our mailing list so you know when it drops so thank you so much to our guests and thank you for listening until part two and until next time peace